0: Hey everybody, this is Cammy here. Just wanted to give you a quick introduction. We've got a little bonus episode here for you today. This is an interview that uh, TJ and I did together after his return trip from China. So TJ spent 10 days in China as part of an exchange program through the American Folklore Society. During this interview, TJ discusses some of the differences between folklore here in the United States and the way it's conducted in China. We'll also be posting a special interview with Executive Director of the American Folklore Society, Jessica Turner, that TJ conducted with her during his trip to China. So I hope you find this interesting. It's definitely a little bit different than our usual podcast. Um, we'll be posting plenty of pictures and more information on our blog, so definitely head over to www.foxfire.org to check that out. My grandfather's gone on, my great grandfather's gone on,
1: but you still live. You know, the the spray is still
0: here
1: so this is kind of a special edition <laughs> um i'm your host tj smith
0: and i'm cami aarons and we are going to talk today about tj's recent trip to china
1: yeah, and um, part of the reason uh, for doing this is because this, this trip was um, an opportunity to learn about how the, the Chinese are approaching the preservation of folklore and folk tradition, which I feel like is, is well in line um, with our mission here at Foxfire. But a big part of the reason why I was invited to, to attend this, this institute and this conference was because the, the, the Chinese Folklore Society was, was really actually interested in learning more about Foxfire, and uh, specifically about uh, building capacity uh, at the community level as a community-based museum uh, and a community-based archive, and a project that is rooted in community involvement, um, which is uh, something that, that is uh, different than the way that they approach preservation. Part of the reason why uh, we wanted to talk about this today. We'll start with how this came together and what and what this, this cultural exchange is all about. So this is a, an exchange between the American Folklore Society and the Chinese Folklore Society that started about 10 years ago. And over those 10 years, the American Folklore Society has sent around 60 folklorists to China as part of this exchange. Um, and the, the idea behind it is one, Um, an exchange of ideas Uh, there's a lot that we have to learn from uh, the Chinese folklorists and sort of their approach to to safeguarding and preserving what they call intangible cultural heritage and then what they can learn from us as American folklorists in the ways in which we preserve uh, cultural traditions and folklore Um, this started as um, also uh, a part of this larger um, organizational effort through UNESCO, which is the United Nations Education, Science, Cultural Organization, a part of the United Nations, the part of the UN. Uh, they uh, held a, a convention in 2003 and a number of nations, 178 nations, signed on to the UNESCO conventions uh, that laid out a framework for heritage preservation on a global scale, um, but also supplied a framework for uh, nations to handle their own cultural preservation. Um, So in China, there already existed sort of this vast system at the national level for, um, for preserving intangible cultural heritage. So prior to the 2003 UNESCO convention, again, China already had this this vast system for ICH, but what UNESCO did, provided them was a a more rigid framework um, for uh, creating a national system dedicated to safeguarding uh, folklore, folk traditions, cultural heritage, what have you. Uh, In China, much like here in the United States, they are dealing with a rapidly changing nation. Um, They're um, very modernized, um, I, I was telling Cami uh, the other day when I got back, like I was surprised at, for instance, like we, we talk about like people are always on their phones here and they're, you know, we're just stuck to our screens and yada, yada. It's the same in China. And it's maybe even amplified a little bit because they have become so reliant on things like WeChat, um and I was, I was telling you like they use it for everything. Like It's not just like a social media platform. Yeah, it's, if you go to a restaurant, there's a, like you sit down at a table, there's a QR code, you scan your QR code, it brings up the menu, you select what you want, you pay for it through the WeChat app, and your food gets brought out to you. <laughs> it's just like very little, you don't have to deal with money, you don't have to deal with really um, ordering through a human <laughs> if you don't want to. So, you know, as, as a government, as a nation, the Chinese see this and, they, and they're concerned that these kinds of modern distractions may or are um, decreasing the public's interest in cultural heritage or that it may not be something that um, people pay attention to and, and, and have a, an urge to preserve. And, and so they're creating this framework. That said, there are there is this really wonderful system, and even more so than here in the United States, people, the, the general public, really, they're able to identify what ICH is. Here, if I go to somebody and tell them I'm a folklorist and talk about folklore, I'm gonna spend five minutes trying to explain what folklore is. And I think we, and we do that all the time anyway, explaining what-
0: Anything in the humanities.
1: Right. <laughs> what is that?
0: What is archaeology? What is history? What's right. heritage? Exactly, yeah, especially folklore. Yes, because people just think of stories.
1: Right, or yeah, songs or or myth. But in China, if you talk to somebody on the street about intangible cultural heritage, they perk up. They know what it is. There are television stations dedicated to like cultural performances. You can you can watch uh, documentary specials about. Um, performance at the local level, cultural heritage at the local level. And this covers a myriad of things, um, be it everything from song and story to things like porcelain and, and coloring porcelain or making pottery or making baskets. So there's, you know, the... Yeah.
0: And just to jump in, I when we were talking about this and prepping for this episode, I did some research on UNESCO's webpage. And if you go to kind of their ICH homepage, mm-hmm they have like, different cultures listed and specific right. like folk crafts, folk ways within those cultures, and they actually have really great video series on them. So if you're interested in learning more about ICH, head on over to UNESCO's webpage and definitely check that out, because the videos are awesome. And
1: we can, we can link that yeah, on, we'll a, link on the blog for sure.
0: Some more of them.
1: Because it's, it's, it's a lot. Um, and that, that brings up this whole idea of inscription, which is a part of the UNESCO framework. So um, in China, for instance, for, for, their, for their national approach to ICH preservation, they have a local level inscription. There's sort of this hierarchy. There's local, there's provincial, so per province. So for instance, I was in Guangzhou, China, which is in Guangdong province. So there are, there are inscriptions for provincial level um, examples of intangible cultural heritage, and then there's a national list, and then finally there's this global list. all right? these global inscriptions that come from UNESCO, and so these local communities, these provincial representatives can apply to UNESCO to have their whatever their their, their the cultural tradition is inscribed. And once it's inscribed, it's like inscribed in stone, like it is a piece of intangible cultural heritage that belongs to this particular village or this particular province or to the national Chinese, you know, population. And once they own it, they own it. The problem or the potential problem with that is, especially on the local level, so I'll use an example of the United States. Let's say we wanted to inscribe pottery, folk pottery. Let's say in White County, they want to inscribe the face jug as a intangible cultural heritage piece, the art of making the face jug that's specific to White County. And they want to take ownership of the entire tradition though. And it's a tradition that also exists throughout the Southeast and various pottery districts. Well, if White County gets the inscription, it's theirs and they can lay claim to it and they can put up signage that says you know inscribed home of folk pottery face jugs or face jugs through UNESCO and they have ownership proprietary ownership then of that piece of cultural heritage so while other other counties or other places other states can say we also do this they don't get the same funding are the same uh, notoriety, visibility that White County would get as the UNESCO official inscribed, in, you know, uh, inheritor space or or, or uh, ownership space of this particular brand of cultural heritage, and that's that's an idea that's maybe a little bit foreign to us because we don't have a lot of state funding, <laughs> or national funding for folklore or folklore tradition. We have things like NEA and NEH which supply grants that we all compete and apply to. Some states have state folklorists and they're able to receive some grant dollars through their state folklorists, but again, it's the application. Whereas in China, they have a Ministry of Culture. They have a, a very robust funding structure that not only funds the preservation of these folk traditions, but also, for instance, funds the what they call the inheritors who are the master craftspeople or the master artists that take part in, in creating these pieces of intangible cultural heritage. So for instance, the, the the porcelain painter that we visited in Guangzhou, Master Tan, he gets funding from the national level to have a studio space, to host classes, um, to even some maybe even have people stay. He's been given money to, to create, you know, um, Lodging for for people who want to come to him and learn and apprentice under him. So he gets supported as an artist, and his his costs of teaching or passing on this piece of intangible cultural heritage, he gets money to do that. The uh, Chinese government officials, the the you know the prime ministers and all these individuals who are at the head of states, they actually go into communities and they say, hey, you know, I'm here in, in this town or this village and we're here to celebrate this particular cultural art form. Um, you know, we are supporting this financially. And, and, you know, the example that Jessica gives, imagine if the President of the United States came to Foxfire and said, we're really proud of these, you know, of what these young people are doing. We're proud of, of the ways that they're preserving this cultural heritage. And this is something that's important to the United States and we need to be um vigilant and in supporting this what that would do for us as an organization but also what it would do for our community because the other thing that's that's a phenomenon that we've been talking about here but that's actually a big global phenomenon is cultural tourism and a lot of what unesco does for these these countries that have signed on to the convention who have gotten cultural heritage inscribed pieces of intangible cultural heritage inscribed is now they have a you know there are cultural tourists who that's all they do is they travel to places around the world to witness and be a part of folk tradition or to document it or to witness it or you know to have an Instagram moment or whatever it is um, they come they stay in the villages they spend their money there they visit the sites they visit the studios they purchase you know baskets or, or whatnot um, it's a it's a big money maker. For a lot of these villages, and that and that's why it's so important to them to get that UNESCO inscription or to get that localized inscription is because it, it lends valid, validity to their their place in this larger tradition of intangible cultural heritage. And again, it's not all wonderful. When I went to this conference, I had never really had much experience with UNESCO, largely because. The United States is one of the one of the nations that did not sign into onto the UNESCO Convention, so it's not something that we talk about a lot as folklorist here in the United States, uh, as far as like its role in in our efforts to preserve and safeguard cultural heritage. Um, so I was kind of doe eyed listening to these people talk about you know money from the government <laughs> and money from you know from uh, from these various sources and just how well supported they are and how. People are just really excited about these, these pieces of folklore and folk tradition. Uh, however, as the week went on and we had more and more conversations, there are some, some problems. It's highly bureaucratic. It's a very bureaucratic system. Um, it has the potential to standardize or sterilize a culture, whereas here we talk about living tradition the work that our students, you know, is, are going out and doing in the community and, and sort of looking at how cultural traditions like weaving or pottery or, or others have evolved over time. And they're changing and people are adding their own, you know, their own flair or their own ideas or their own innovations to a piece of cultural heritage. Um, under the UNESCO framework, there is that, that potential where, no, it has to be this way. Like if we inscribe this piece of intangible cultural heritage, we're not just inscribing like a general idea of it. We're, we're inscribing very specific elements of that particular piece of cultural heritage, like the porcelain painting. It has to be done in this way. Uh, it includes these materials. So it sort of, it, it, it doesn't leave a whole lot of, of leeway or latitude for innovation. In some instances, not in every case, but there's the potential there of doing it.
0: Yeah. I would say it's almost comparable to what happened during the crafts revival movement that I feel like a lot of folk traditions are still kind of recovering from mm-hmm. because when that, when that came about in the 30s and 40s with you know, increased mobility among people and increased tourism in this region, I mean, we see what happened to Cherokee crafts. You know, mm-hmm. A lot of Cherokee basket weavers and potters took on forms that weren't necessarily traditional to their cultures. Um, and those kind of became standardized and associated with Cherokee crafts. But I think it wasn't until, you know, maybe the 60s that people really started pushing more to have those more traditional forms recognized. But then growing and innovation from that outside of that kind of tourism bracket and tourism like standard. So. Well, and,
1: and too, it, it creates this, this conflict of authenticity. Yeah and these discussions about what is authentic and who decides what is authentic. Is it a governing body of professionals? And that's the other thing too. So, so much of our work is dependent, especially in our case at Foxfire on lay people, young people who are students, but also just general members from the community going out and conducting the documentation work. Right. Whereas in China, they have a very, very, very stringent, um, perspective on it where it's the professionals who are doing the work. Now they go. Now they, they are trying to do more with community involvement. That's a big reason why I was there and why some of the other folklorists who, who went along, who were also on the trip came, was to discuss the ways in which we build capacity at the community level, where we have a lot of community involvement and community input with how these things are documented and how they're interpreted. Whereas in China, it, they they are speaking with community members, but they're also prescribing. Like we think that this would be best for you to do it this way, um, or let's get we're giving you options and we'll we'll let you maybe choose an option. Whereas here it's more or less it's more organic coming from the community and they're stating you know we want to like with the students what do you want to go explore today like what is it that you're interested in what would you like to write a story on. It's really coming from their perspective and their their interests. Whereas this is in, in China and these in some of these other nations, it's far more professionalized. And a lot of emphasis on training folklorists and training people in this work and then putting them on the ground to go into communities and facilitate these processes to help them inscribe, which is very similar, you know, applying for inscription is very similar to writing a grant. But they're they're really steering them towards certain things, like, oh, you've got this amazing, you know, weaving tradition or textile tradition. Let's work together to inscribe that, and let's think about ways we can industrialize it. That's the other thing, too, is like, creating industry from intangible cultural heritage as an economic, you know, engine, which is something that we've talked about here. We talk about not only in terms of cultural tourism, but also, like, how can, you know, How can we empower people to take up something like weaving, but then industrialize it to some degree where people are producing things that are then being sold, like the Cherokee baskets or or pottery or things like that, you know, where they're producing goods for the sole purpose of selling to people outside of the community. So there, you know, that can get gross (laughs) for lack of a better term. Um, However, if a community is making the decision or making the choice that we're looking at our resources, we have to have economy. Here's a resource that we have, an asset. We have these people who can create this cultural product or we have these sites that people should come and visit or we'd like them to come and visit. Who's to say that that's a wrong, a bad thing? Um, I think a lot of it has to do these questions of intention and origin like where is it coming from what's the intention behind it who is benefiting from it that was another big thing that came up like who's benefiting from this is it a small group of people who have power already or is it benefiting the community at large and I think that's you know our students are are working on uh, these stories around economic development and cultural tourism and I think those are those are questions that have to come up. Is like, who is this ultimately benefiting? Is it benefiting the people most in need at the community level, people who need money and resources, and who are in you know need basic health care, need access to good food? Is it helping those people, or is it helping people who are already established, who are financially secure, who you know who are already in positions of power, and it's just making them more powerful or more wealthy? So those are some dynamic questions that come out of that. But overall, uh, the experience was tremendous. Um, I've made a lot of new friends, um, and we, you know, we're know, we all still in contact with one another, and, and uh, we actually just sent a, a set of Foxfire books to Sun senator University for their library there so that um, the, their scholars at the Institute for Intangible Cultural Heritage um, can learn more about Foxfire and sort of what we do here. Um, and I feel like the conversations are gonna continue, but it was a remarkable, remarkable experience, and and I'm looking forward to the day when when some of our our Chinese hosts there in Guangzhou can come to Foxfire and visit, and I think they really want to, because they were, um, not to brag, but the presentation that I gave, not because I gave it, but because of the content, was one that elicited or, or inspired the most discussion and, and conversation after, people were really engaged with it, really excited about it. One one of the Chinese students, one of the grad students, um, uh, Chen Yao, she stood up and said, "You know, I feel like if this was in China, this would be something that the government would be just lauding over, the efforts that you're that you're doing, and would be really celebrating what Foxfire does." And that I thought was pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah, so. But yeah, it was a great trip, and um, I'm going to uh, create some more notes, lots of pictures, lots of food <laughs> pictures, <laughs> um, some amazing food traditions uh, there in, in Guangdong province, and um, we'll share that all on the blog, and, and as well as some links to UNESCO and, and some of these other uh, organizations that we discussed, and, and, and sort of give people a more in-depth framework for, for this topic. But yeah, it was an amazing experience
0: awesome yeah well thanks for sharing and yeah. yeah definitely head on over to our website if you're not already there listening to this episode and check out the extra content that tj put up for us and um we'd love to hear from you guys as always you can reach out to us at it at or on twitter at it still lives and the number one see you next time if you don't like that you can throw it away yeah. <laughs>